We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. The names behind the numbers. The stories behind the names. This is the Her Hoop Stats Podcast with John Little. I found it very heartbreaking. If you look at that shot that Kawhi made, it could have gone either way. And that again speaks to this whole randomness that we cannot control. And just accepting the things that we can control and things that we cannot control kind of gives you peace. The biggest newsmakers, the best storytellers, the Her Hoop Stats podcast. Here's your host, John Little. And we're back on the Her Hoop Stats Podcast. Welcome in to episode number 12. Great to have you along. I'm John Little here with you coming up in just a little bit. We're going to be talking to one of the leading data scientists in the NBA. And Ivana Sircic, she is going to be dropping by in just a bit uh, to talk about her role with the Philadelphia 76ers. And we're a stats website, so we enjoy bringing stuff like that to you that uh, teeters on the brink of our nerdism. And we're also bringing in one of our fellow nerds right now, the founder of Her Hoop Stats, Aaron Barzilai, is with us. Aaron, how are you? Doing well, John. How are you doing today? I am doing awesome. You got a chance to go out to All-Star Weekend, and I wanted to talk to you about it because I was I was super jealous. Not only did you get to play a, a pickup basketball game with some of the best women's basketball minds out there and some of the media members, but you also got to attend some of the real basketball players uh, playing as well. So what was your highlight in the uh, in the media pickup game? Tell us uh, tell us about um, all the uh, the points and assists you had. My personal, you know, I did ha- hit two back-to-back threes. That probably was uh, the highlight. You could hear, uh, uh, I forget who it was, O'Brien, who's uh, on the news, uh, NBC uh, anchor uh, in Las Vegas. Shout out to Brian. Uh, was on our team and was really uh, carrying us. 
But uh, yeah, no, I, I had a couple of moments. I was a little rusty early, hadn't played in a few months. Mostly I spend my time uh, exercising, like running or something like that. But it was good to know that uh, underneath the shell, still a little bit of a player. Absolutely. And it, it looked like you guys uh, really got after it, too, because everybody was uh, was just drenched after that one in the group <laughs> pick. So, uh, But it just, uh, you know, kind of tells you about uh, all the fun that All-Star Weekend is. It's fun for the media members. It's fun for the players as well because they get to congregate and do stuff outside of it. What What's the one thing that really sticks out to you, the experience uh, that uh, you got to it, that you got to have that uh, really stuck out to you for the weekend? Oh, well, there were so many memorable moments and, and really meeting uh, the media, both uh, that, you, that you sometimes see across the country on Twitter, but haven't met in person is always a highlight, seeing sort of old friends and then also meeting some new ones, uh, whether it was at Media Pickup or just uh, on Press Row or, you know, media the media food was quite good, as you'd expect, uh, when uh, MGM and Mandalay Bay is putting it together. Uh, so the, uh, that was really an experience. But I would say probably the thing that was the coolest was just to walk around uh, on the court after the All-Star game itself. Uh, and that was just a sort of tremendous experience that I'm definitely uh, going to remember for, for a long time. Uh, it could not have played out any better with Erica Wheeler just, my goodness, just going off early. And then right as uh, the the announcers, uh, Ryan and uh, everybody out there, Rebecca, were starting to you know speculate on who the MVP is. She put it all to bed with that dagger three at the end. What was the atmosphere like when she nailed that thing? Oh, yeah. You know, they were kind of buzzing about her earlier, as you mentioned, because I think she was, what, like six for six uh, in the first half? Yeah, right off the bat. Yeah. Yeah. um, But I think quieted down a little bit. But then, yeah, when she hit that ice three, there was a nice, uh, you know, little roar from the crowd. You knew it was over and you knew that she was going to be the MVP. But then at the same time, uh, there was still that sort of amazing, I guess, I don't think you call it drama, but it was just such a moment when, um, I guess, Holly uh, was interviewing her and uh, announced that she had won the trophy and that she could see the tears in her eyes. Uh, streaming down her cheeks uh, from where I was standing. And it was just so memorable. That's an incredible story. And I just love that. And it, it's it's wonderful for any of these athletes to get featured, but especially a player. Uh, she wears that undrafted shirt around. And then with the story of, uh, of losing her mom as well uh, back in 2012, uh, there's just... There's a lot to love there. So uh, really, really excited for Erica Wheeler and for the uh, Fever fan base as well. Uh, So one of the things that you got to do as well and the rest of the media is meet Kathy Engelbert, meet the new commissioner of the WNBA. And I guess officially the the first ever commissioner of the WNBA. She seems so squared away. (laughs) My goodness. uh, she, She knows how to work a crowd. There's no doubt. What was your first impression actually being there in the room with her? Oh, yeah. No, she seemed just so personable and approachable. And you could, I mean, obviously, it's still early in her tenure. And so she was able to, I think she used the phrase listening to her multiple times enough that she was sort of joking about how that was her answer to everything. But she just seemed like such you know, a great leader. You could see how she had risen to the stature both at Deloitte and now to be commissioner of the WNBA uh, over the course of her career. I spoke to her very briefly on Friday, I think, after the, the three-point contest. Uh, and she was just, you know, very happy to chat and welcoming. And, you know, you could tell that she was trying to talk to all the different uh, constituents, all the stakeholders, right, as I think she'll often refer to them, you know, whether it's fan, players, media, um, you know, the ownership group, of course. And then, you know, 
broadcast networks and stuff like that. There's so many people that she needs to really kind of balance the input from as she thinks about where to guide the league uh, to grow it as she wants. Uh, so, and then it was just really great to hear a little bit of her vision. She really emphasized, I believe, her three pillars that she said uh, a few times was this idea of the fan experience, the player experience, and really the economics. And those are really the three things that she's going to be kind of always going back to uh, as she's thinking about, you know, specific decisions. I got the impression uh, over the course of her leadership. And so it was really good to hear her think about that, obviously, you know, beyond the very amazing USA basketball announcement. There weren't a ton of specifics uh, about the W in particular, but she really also emphasized, and I thought it was an excellent theme, this concept of how do we keep fans engaged with the W all uh, year long, right? Right now, you know, they come together, there is excitement, uh, you know, in this, this kind of moment in the summer, but of course, at the same time, lots of fans are traveling, um, you know, on vacation and stuff, and so it can be hard to keep up. Then, you know, I think that as we get into the playoffs, you know, it's going to be in September. Football will be back in season, which may or may not affect some casual fans. They may not might not pick up. And so, you know, a real key question they're asking is how can we keep this excitement going kind of all year long? And I think that'll be particularly interesting to see how they do it, balancing it with, uh, you know, the college season. You know, one thing that that they did bring up, sorry, is uh, this concept they're going to do this tour, which I think is really going to help. But uh, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. It's going to be great to expose those current, uh, you know, best pro players uh, to the big time fans in the college game. However, they do it right around the final four. I, th- I think that's a great way to go for sure. And, uh, you know, with uh, just the uh, whirlwind that Kathy Engelbert has been on, I, I, it's no surprise that she doesn't have incredible specifics about what she wants to do for gosh sakes she's being dropped into a um i don't want to say uh, a labor dispute but it, you know a labor <laughs> negotiation for sure she's being dropped right into the middle of this thing and has to you know uh try to figure out her way to appropriately lead as a, as a brand new leader so I, yeah. I i i don't necessarily envy her but it seems like she's the right person for the job Definitely. And I think that, you know, obviously it wasn't intentional, but it's really interesting uh, how it sort of lets her say, hey, you had all these conversations. And, you know, Diana Taurasi uh, gave that interview with ESPNW, right, where she was sort of complaining about the way uh, – I guess the, essentially the league has been developing itself over the last decade or so. And so now she can come in with like a fresh slate and say, Hey, I'm here to focus on the future. Like we're all on the same page. You know, I'm sure it helps a little bit that, you know, she played in college for Muffin McGraw and, uh, you know, just like can sort of understand the perspective from both sides. So I hope it'll be uh, a chance for, uh, you know, there'd be some goodwill. I don't have any, you know, behind the scene gossip about the uh, negotiating session that they had uh, before the, um, uh, I guess they probably did it on Thursday since the announcement came out Friday. But, you know, I think everybody's hoping that, um, you know, they'll be able to have a good um, open negotiation with good communication and, you know, we won't get into, um, you know, significant uh, trouble with a lockout or any kind of labor dispute, I guess. Exactly. We're visiting with Aaron Barzilai, our founder of Her Hoop Stats, of course. And one of his assignments was to go out to the All-Star weekend. And it seemed like the fan engagement was just incredible. And the fans that are there, um, you know, in, unless they're an Aces fan or unless they're from Las Vegas, they've got a 
pay a pretty penny to, to fly in. And it's going to take probably at least a thousand bucks, even if you do it cheaply on the weekend to uh, come out to All-Star Weekend. So anybody that's there, they are extremely excited to be there. What was the uh, fan interaction like with the players and how buzzed were these fans just to, to be in the presence of the uh, best uh, players in the world? Oh, they were super excited, and you could just uh, sort of feel it. It was first of all, it was just exciting to see the prominent placement. And I'd seen this before in Las Vegas for the Aces uh, when I've traveled there before. But you know, there's just huge billboards and stuff on Las Vegas Boulevard uh, promoting the All Star Game itself, and then you know the lines were incredibly long to get in. I actually on Saturday kind of got stuck in with the. Uh, the fans waiting in line for security. So that was, uh, that was quite a wait. It was uh, definitely a lot of people were there. Same for the fan fest. I think I got some video that I tweeted out on Twitter, but then probably the moment that it kind of really hit home for me. Uh, well, first of all, I, I bumped into a fan from Mexico as I was waiting in line. Um, so they clearly made the trip up. I didn't catch what um, part of Mexico they were from, but clearly it traveled a long way. Um, there were some fans from like Nova Scotia that were just all about trying to get uh, Keaton's attention to get an autograph or something like yeah, that so yeah. people you know, you know i didn't see anyone from australia but i'm sure they were there for lithium beige um but yeah they, the crowd that was really kind of where it hit on the most was as they were signing autographs after the game itself and just the sort of you know high-pitched uh screams of the young girls uh trying to get the attention of their favorite player and get them to come over and sign autographs and you know i mean it's, it's pretty amazing uh just how committed the players themselves are, right? It's a lot of work, and I could see it being tiresome, especially after a long weekend. I mean, I was exhausted. I could only imagine what how they were feeling. Uh, so, you know, it's just really uh, impressive to see the connection that they make with the fans and, and really how important they, uh, you know, the WMB is, is our uh, Chambers often says. That's exactly right. And how important the All-Star game is. You know, in some pro sports, it's – almost the thing that some players want to avoid. They don't mind being named to the All-Star game necessarily, but they don't necessarily uh, aren't uh, always keen about going or engaging or whatever. But the players really seem to soak it in and use it as a way uh, to, uh, you know, show off their personality to the fans. Yeah, no, that was uh, amazing. And even I, I'll definitely talk about that. But I think even the thing that struck me the most from that perspective was how many people were there from the sky. I think pretty much the whole team was there supporting uh, the Vanderquigs uh, and Diamond <laughs> to Shields as well. They got I we took I got a photo. I managed to sneak behind the official cameraman as they were uh, taking a photo post game. You know, Stephanie Dolson, everybody was there. And, uh, you know, that kind of thing just kind of really kind of struck me. I don't think you see quite as much of that, you know, say in the NBA uh, All-Star game, you know, Derek Fisher was there uh, supporting his players, um, you know, which, again, I thought was a little bit unusual. I saw some, uh, you know, I think a lot of college coaches were in as well, which was uh, pretty cool. But then, yeah, I mean, you could see I was actually a little jealous of you uh, watching from home because I saw the interplay uh, between Cambage and Caleb McBride as, uh, you know, Cambage was playing point guard to start the game, if you remember. Yeah, that was And uh, that was pretty funny. You could see they were jawing, and I was like, oh, I wish I knew what they were saying. I didn't realize Caleb McBride was, like, mic'd up on the court. That must have been amazing. 
Well, they they didn't get to show us all of that because, uh, but Liz did say that she was cussing her out. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure there's that secret audio somewhere that somebody has. So, yeah, just pass it along. We'll uh, we'll just pass it amongst ourselves. We won't we won't publicly air the dirty laundry or anything. But it was in seriousness. It was all in good fun. And uh, seeing Brittany Griner duck three times, including one right there while uh, while Liz is standing underneath her, was was a lot of fun as well. So I, I think. You you couldn't have asked for a better All Star Weekend, and you know um, I, I don't want to be uh, all the all the flowers and rainbows all the time or overly praise something, but really it came across on TV really really well, and it sounds like uh, Las Vegas was just about the perfect place to hold something like that. Yeah, and that was definitely a thing. I mean, there was a lot of Las Vegas media there, which was great, and then they you know they asked a lot of questions about how Las Vegas was doing, and I think. Uh, you know, universally, everyone's just so impressed with the, uh, you know, the way that MGM and Mandalay is supporting the Aces. Again, the promotion that you see kind of, I think, at least season round, uh, if not year round, is, is quite clearly there in a way that I don't think any other teams get. And it's really, I think, I forget who said it, but at least one player really talked about how it just kind of raises the bar and shows, you know, what can be done if you're really investing in it. And, um, you know, I think it's sort of, Something that I think that the players and really I'm sure the whole league, you know, is hoping will be emulated the best practices that, um, you know, Las Vegas is learning. You know, it's interesting. You talked about Brittany Griner and her dunks. Uh, I was struck in the press conference. And one thing, um, you know, being a part of the media when you're there, it's, you know, the more you interact with the players, you know, the more you see them less as, you know, these you know, deities you worship, uh, especially when you're younger and more is just people and the different kind of concerns and how they think about it. You know, you hear a lot about mental health and some of the, you know, issues that the players are facing with their lifestyles on the road and whatnot. And so Brittany was commenting on how, because someone asked, I think Doug Feinberg asked her how, uh, he, how she was, uh, what she was thinking, sorry, when, uh, she was dunking and she sort of talked a little bit about how she like, you know, everybody would ask her if she was going to dunk and she felt like a little bit of pressure. And, you know, I hadn't really, I mean, I, I guess I'd sort of thought about it a little bit, but it's, it's interesting that she sort of felt a little bit of a, uh, you know, pressure to, to perform in that front. My favorite actually highlight less so the dunks, but I loved it when she and the, she ISOed uh, Cambage out on the perimeter and drove by her for a little layup. That was a lot of fun early, I thought, as well. And Rebecca said, get in your stance. Uh, there it was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. It, was, it was fun to watch those two, 6'9 and 6'8, go after it, no doubt. Yeah, a lot of great moments. Absolutely. A lot of fun. Well, this is something that we'd like to do uh, more of, though, Aaron. Uh, we've got several great basketball minds on the staff, several great fans of the WNBA and women's college basketball as well. And we'd like to do some more of this uh, podcasting style where, uh, you know, it's it's more uh, of an uh, an opportunity to just talk back and forth, uh, give some opinions in there, a little bit more latitude uh, than just the interview style. So uh, it sounds like uh, we're going to be releasing a few more of these with some of the personalities uh, across the site. Yeah, that's definitely the plan. You know, obviously we love, uh, you know, what you're doing and you're incredibly, uh, professional podcast. Uh, it's something that I'd hope we, uh, would have at her hoop stats for quite some time. And so when you, uh, came on board and said you were interested and willing to do it. And then, you know, as I understood your, uh, incredible background, I was like, you know, just over the moon that we were going to be able to have you doing these kind of great interviews with real leaders in the game. But then at the same time, you know, we are having lots of fun conversations on our Slack and things like that. That's or right. Sometimes on the phone. And so 
wanted to, you know, talk about some of those same topics. I think people uh, are interested in that kind of thing. So uh, I'm probably going to, we're planning to do one, um, Megan Gower and myself, I think later this week is the plan. If we don't have any technical difficulties, still don't uh, know exactly what we're going to call it, but I uh, did like your suggestion of her group stats unplugged. It's actually going to be a very low fi uh, <laughs> version. It's not going to have quite the production quality uh, that you do, but we think it'll be fun. And, you know, we'll talk about uh, topics like maybe other potential competitions uh, that they could do in the all-star Friday night. Uh, I had a couple ideas for that. And, you know, just kind of general impressions on how things are going in the league. Maybe talk about um, articles we've read or written that we think are pretty interesting that some of our listeners uh, might want to check out, whether by us or by other folks in the women's basketball community. And so, yeah, it's something we're really excited about. You know, one of the themes uh, really from the start for her hoop stats has been trying to experiment because we don't know exactly what works. We know there's lots of different uh, things that people do in the media, especially in other sports. And so a lot of things that we can try and see if that's what the fans want and if we are you know good enough to do in a way that will really uh you know resonate and so this is just gonna be one more experiment so you know we might abort after a couple of uh, listening to ourselves for a couple of weeks <laughs> but my my hope is that you know it'll it'll feel like you know you're listening listening in on me and megan chatting at the bar about uh women's hoops whether it's WNBA or you know college when fall rolls around so we'll see how it goes Outstanding. And i appreciate all the tips you're giving us well and i i think it's uh, it's something that people are really gonna like and it's gonna help bridge the gap from week to week because i know a, a week's just too long to wait sometimes for more content Definitely. so yeah let's make it a a bonus content her hoop stats podcast unplugged or low fire whatever we end up calling it and so yeah we'll we'll try to do that midweek and uh release these interviews on monday and we'll just uh, keep doing a better and better job every week of uh bringing the best of the wnba and ncaa to the fans well aaron thank you so much for your commitment to starting this site and for wanting to expand it um beyond i, I say just the stats because that is a really important part of it obviously and thank you for that but uh, uh but thanks for your vision we and we appreciate your support as well uh and uh thanks for going to all-star weekend and uh and having some fun and growing the brand my pleasure no all-star weekend of course is uh is a real perk uh a little different than uh going to a random uh regular season game on a tuesday night or something like that uh it was a ton of fun but really i wanted to say thanks to you for everything you've been doing on this podcast and really thanks for the whole team both the people that are working on it currently and folks that helped us uh back when we started it in the fall of uh, 2017 and beyond uh you know i very made a very conscious uh decision at the beginning that i didn't want to just try and do this uh build her group stats on my own and i no question it was the best decision that uh, i made we've got amazing people volunteering for the site uh and you know the commitment and, and interest that they have in the women's game was just really breathtaking so i really can never express enough how grateful i am to everybody for the work that they're doing on our team. Yeah, sometimes I'm just I just marvel at uh, the amount of work that people put into it, and like you said, they are uh, volunteers, and so they they do it for the love. They they really really do. They do it for the right reason because they want to grow the game. And uh, yeah. so thanks for leading that. And yes, I, I echo what you say. Thanks to everybody that contributes to the site. Aaron, we'll talk to you soon, and we look forward to hearing this uh, first unplugged podcast or whatever we're going to call it here. Yes, thanks a lot. I am as well. Fingers. <laughs> there he is. That's Aaron Barzilai, our founder here of Her Hoop Stats. Appreciate his time. And we svetly segue now 
to our next guest of the podcast, and uh, she is a basketball genius. And I do not use that lightly at all when I throw out that term. She is a math whiz, a doctorate in mathematics, and also a data analyst for the Philadelphia 76ers. You got to be freaking smart to be able to do that at the NBA level. And it's really interesting how Ivana Sircic went from uh, growing up in Croatia to moving on to New Jersey Institute of Technology. Her love of math now integrated with her love of basketball. Uh, you're going to love hearing from her. So here's our chat with Ivana Sircic. Thank you for inviting me. I feel honored to be on your podcast. No, it is absolutely uh, our honor for sure. Well, I think you've just got an incredibly interesting story. I just want to dive in and get your story because it's so multi-layered, it's so multifaceted, and it starts not even here in the U.S., but growing up in Croatia. Uh, tell me about your childhood and what it was like growing up in Croatia, Ivana. Um, well, I was born in the late 1980s, and that was right before the war in Yugoslavia started. Uh, but I was very young, and I don't remember most of the things of that time. So I would say my childhood was pretty normal, so whatever that means. But the main difference between the life in Croatia and the U.S. is that Croatia is a lot smaller. We have a little over 4 million people. And my city is, is the biggest, is second biggest city in Croatia. And it today it only has maybe 180,000 people. And in the U.S. so far, places that I've lived were uh, Newark, New Jersey, which is part of the New York City metropolitan area, which has 20 million people. So there was quite a big difference um, going from uh, a much smaller place to, to New York City area. And you were from uh, Split, Croatia, correct? Yes. How is the basketball community in Split, Croatia? Split has a really long tradition for basketball. In the late 80s, the uh, basketball team in Split, which was at the time called Yugoplastica, uh, they won three European championships in a row. So there's, there's a really big tradition in basketball uh, in, in Split. Was it introduced to you early on as far as a possibility of something athletically or something in as far as a pastime that, that you could do? Uh, well, I started playing when I was seven years old. The way the way sports work in Croatia, it's a little different than in the U.S. So the kids do not have like sports programs with school. They're all separated from school. They're part of the club program. Uh, so at the time, I was going to this, what was called the School of Basketball. Uh, so the clubs get some support from the city, uh, but the kids will pay like a membership fee. And at the time, there was only one team uh, in my city. When I started playing, it was in, in 1995. Uh, we didn't really have leagues for, for like seven-year-olds. So the youngest league was under 14. So at the time, I didn't I didn't play an actual game until I was 11 years old. That makes a lot of sense. So it gave you some time to really hone your skills before you got onto the floor in an actual game. Uh, were there positives to that, you think? Uh, yeah, I think there were a lot of positives. So spending so much time in the School of Basketball helped me develop very good fundamentals. So even though I, I became very tall later on, um, I still was able to dribble and pass uh, very well. Also, during this time, 
this had to be kind of your uh, the start of your love for math as well. What's your earliest memories of uh, just loving mathematics? Uh, I think I've always loved math since the first grade. Uh, my older brothers were also really good at it. Uh, but in the first grade, um, after we learned, you know, just the numbers from 1 to 10, addition and subtraction, the teacher gave us a little exercise, just, you know, adding some numbers, subtracting some numbers. And I got them all all right. Maybe there was like 10 to 12 problems. I don't really remember. Uh, but but it just started right from there. Uh, and I always enjoyed it. Math made a lot of sense to me because um, there are well-defined rules and they always hold. They're, they're not really open to subjective interpretation, unlike most things in the real world. So what drove me to math from young age was that, that there, there's always a right answer. And there's, but there's no right way to get to it. You can, you can solve a problem in many different ways, but you'll always get the same answer as, you know, as long as you didn't break any rules. Did math at this point, did math and basketball ever come together? Did you ever see the connection between the two during your young playing days? I would say they were always kind of separate and competing for my attention, I guess. When I was uh, choosing high school, you know, I wanted to play professional basketball, but I also liked math, so I, I sort of picked a, a math-oriented high school, which if I picked something maybe easier, I would have had more time to practice, but I enjoyed both, so I, that's why I did that. But I didn't really like I didn't really connect them in, in a deeper or, or a higher level at the time. Um, I guess when I was in high school and middle school, I, I sort of understood how the uh, box scores and like the basic statistics can be misleading just from just from the experience, like seeing players uh, fill up the stat sheet, but also at the same time seeing how little effect it would have on whether we won the game or not. So that was like the first time I kind of started, I guess, thinking about stats on a different level. That's really interesting. So you go through high school and you start to think about what you want to do um, for a career. And of course, you would start thinking about college. So how did you get connected to possibly going to New Jersey Institute of Technology and possibly playing as well at NJIT? How did that all come together? So when I was 12 years old, I I've decided I wanted to uh, go to college in the U.S. and play basketball. It's a lot more difficult to do this in Croatia if you want to do both at a high level, because uh, as I said, the school and, and, and sports are not really integrated the same way as they are in the U.S. So I wanted to come to college in the U.S. and, and, and play basketball. And the way I got connected to NJIT, so it's a funny coincidence. So remember how I said Croatia is, is pretty small in terms of population? We have a family friend who is a famous singer in Croatia, and he frequently goes to New York City and, and has concerts for Croatian community there. So he knew a few Croatian there. Coach Margaret McKean from NJIT, uh, she was also from Queens in New York. And it turned out they had some common friends, and that's how we got connected. It's kind of funny to think that you know, I got to go to NJIT and everything that happened after that was because of this connection. That is really interesting. And, uh, you know, once you did get to NJIT because of this, you know, chance connection, somebody knows somebody else, which is always really cool to hear how that happens. But um, once you did get to NJIT, you were not just an end of the bench type player. You really contributed there at a high level. 
what got you prepared for that, especially just knowing that, um, it, like you said, the basketball community and the basketball training that you receive in Croatia is so much different than a young girl in the U.S. might experience? I think what prepared me a lot was playing with Croatian national team under 16 and under 18. Uh, so the way it works is that there's usually a camp for like a month or month and a half uh, before European Championships. So at the time, you really train at the high level and there are two workouts a day, uh, sometimes even three. So you really got to train at, at the highest level and also with the best at your age um, in in the country. And then the European Championship itself, it, it's playing against the best players in Europe at that age. So that was one of the things that got me uh, really prepared. But another thing was that I worked out with a, with a conditioning coach who helped me really prepare like physically for the different, different type of uh, game that's played in the U.S. Very cool. So what kind of player were you? If you were to try to explain yourself uh, to somebody and and about your good old days in college, what were your go-to moves? What were you kind of known for? Being tall, but at the same time being able to dribble the ball meant that I was guarded by other tall players who usually not accustomed to defending dribble drives from the perimeter. So my favorite thing was to drive from the top of the key and either, either try to finish at the rim or try to kick it out for uh, a shooter. Especially uh, during uh, high school, my team team that I played with in Požega in Croatia, uh, we had at least three shooters on the floor at the same time. So it was a lot of fun to just play drive and kick game. So it sounds like from early on, you were a one of those mismatch players that we talk about. How did uh, being one of those mismatch players lead to the way you look at and analyze the game? Uh, I think being able to, having the fundamentals and being able to dribble, but also being tall, I played at uh, many different positions depending on the lineup on the court. Uh, so sometimes I played the center, sometimes I play a forward. Um, sometimes I even played the uh, point guard, which was usually just to relieve the pressure of our point guard because I was guarded by a much slower person. Uh, so I think that gave me a perspective on, on how all different spots on the court work. We're visiting with Ivana Seric right now, and she is a data scientist for the Philadelphia 76ers. And we're uh, moving through her uh, career, and certainly we're going to get to her role with the 76ers very quickly here. But I want to know about at what point you picked up Tamika Catchings, and you learned about Tamika Catchings to the point where she became your favorite player. Why did you latch on to Tamika Catchings as your favorite basketball player? So I watched one of her games with University of Tennessee when I was 12 years old. That's uh, coincidental at the same time I decided I wanted to play college basketball in the U.S. But at the time, it was really hard to get college games in Croatia. But I had part of this game. It wasn't even a whole game. I had it recorded on a VHS tape, and I watched it, uh, let's just say, a lot of times. Um, what I liked about her is that she played with so much intensity. She was very skilled offensively and could score from all spots, but she also played hard on the defensive end. Like she would dive to save a ball going out of bounds. And, and you don't see players playing the both sides at that level very often. No, you don't. Uh, we had a lot of fun speaking with her a few weeks ago about her career. And uh, I know that she's as good of a person off the court as she is on the court. Somehow, you know, through fate, through what have you, your paths crossed even before you got 
uh, to that NBA level. Tell us about how you ended up designing shoes for her last appearance uh, when she kind of her farewell tour when she came to play at the New York Liberty. Um, that was a lot of fun. Uh, so her final WNBA season, she had a farewell tour, um, which included one game in, in each city. And she gave this opportunity to the fans to design the shoes that she would wear at each one of those games. And she would, she would sell them after the game for a fundraising uh, for her foundation. So she picked 12 designs and, and mine was one of them. So I, at first, I just got a message that it was chosen, but I didn't know which game she would wear them. But And at the time, I lived in Newark, New Jersey, which is really just a 20-minute train ride from New York City. So, of course, I already had the tickets to see her game there uh, when the Fevers played the Liberty. And the night before the game, uh, they announced which shoes she would be wearing. And it was such a coincidence that it was that the shoes that, that I designed. So my college coach... Uh, Margaret McKean, she knew one of the assistants on the on the fever, and he got me connected with their PR person, and uh, we ended up taking a picture during the warm-up together. That's outstanding. Tell us about this design of the shoes and why you designed them that way. So there were, there were parts of the shoes were orange, which stood for University of Tennessee, which is the first time I got to watch her play and, and really get to know how she plays. But there was a, there was a Nike logo was glowing in the dark, which was kind of like the stars, which was a reference to her Catch a Star Foundation. Yeah, so you tried to incorporate different things about her and make it uh, not just a cool-looking shoe, but a symbolic shoe as well. That's really that's really neat. So obviously, the whole time you're at NJIT, you're trying to be a great student as well. What was your specific major there at NJIT as an undergrad? I studied applied math. Did you always know that you wanted to take it all the way and and get your doctorate there at NJIT? Was that an early goal of yours? No. So um, I'm the first three years, I, I my goal was to play professional basketball. And then um, during the last year, uh, one of the professors at NJIT told me about this program, uh, which is uh, it's called uh, BS PhD program. So uh, Students could take some graduate classes, and they would count both for their undergraduate and for the PhD degree if they decide to do it. So that was the first time I started thinking about it. And, and then the second thing was we have this capstone research class in at NJIT, which all the all the math uh, undergrads take. It involved a research project, and I really enjoyed it a lot. So that's when I started to really think about going into graduate school and getting a PhD. I got you. How did mathematics kind of take over for you after your playing days were over uh, to have something to, to pour into? Um, yeah, I would say the first few years of the uh, PhD program are very busy. There are a lot of classes to take. There are uh, qualifying exams. Uh, we also tried to already start doing research at the time. So it really took a lot of my time. So I, I didn't really have too much time to think about not playing professional basketball. So I, I really put all my time into math. Gotcha. So you get done with your PhD or even maybe even you're in that uh, in that process. When did you start hearing about data scientists specifically for basketball starting to become a thing? Because this has not always been a thing. When did you first hear of a, a, a basketball data scientist? I think I was about three years into my graduate program. 
I found out that the MBA team is a hiring data scientist. So then I started doing some research and, and I found, learned about the player tracking data and, and then started reading some papers that were published online. And at the time I was studying applied math and my thesis was in computational fluid dynamics. And I enjoyed it a lot. I didn't really think that math would bring me back to basketball. I just thought I'm going to be a researcher at the university or a lab. But when I learned that MBA teams are hiring data scientists, I started learning data science in my free time. And, and I, really, I, really started, I really learned data science with hopes to work in basketball. But also in recent years, there were a lot more uh, people with PhD degrees than, than there were in the past. And also a lot more people with PhDs than there were academic positions. So at the same time, data science field was growing, and it seems like a lot of job openings were, were in that field. So data science was a backup plan in general if, in case the academia doesn't work out. And of course, I, was, I feel very lucky to be able to work as a data scientist in basketball. Absolutely. How did you learn about the specific job with the 76ers, and what was that process like going through um, the interview process and figuring out whether or not you were the right fit? Um, well, I was checking the job postings on the MBA uh, website uh, during my last year of PhD. Um, also, at the same time, I was applying for postdoc positions. I've seen a position with the Sixers, but it, it was already kind of late when I applied. But uh, later on, they, they contacted me and, and told me about the new position that they had open. And that's when I interviewed with them. And so when you are chosen and you are brought into the fold there with the 76ers, was the job exactly like you dreamed it would be? How does it differ from what you thought it might be? I think it's hard to say what I dreamed it would be and what I thought it would be since this kind of job did not exist uh, for a long time. That's a great point. Um, in, some, in some aspects, I would say it's it's exactly what you would expect a data science job to be like. You know, there's a data cleaning and, and uh, preparation stage. There's a modeling stage. There's a model validation stage. On the other hand, it's applied to basketball. So it's, it's quite different than, than a regular uh, data science job. But um, that may be just because I care about basketball so much. So what is it like uh, going game to game during the season? What are your uh, responsibilities with the Sixers? So our analytics team is, is pretty big. We have 10 members. Sergi is our leader. We have three data scientists, uh, Grant, Michael, and myself. We have two developers, uh, Keegan and John. Um, we have one technical scout, which is Ruben. And we have three off-site consultants, Alex, Alex, and Andy. And having such a big team allows us to focus on different areas. So during the season, my focus is on the coaching support, which involves game preparation, uh, preparing scouting reports, and then after the game, uh, preparing a report on how we did. During the season, there's a little time for exploring some long-term uh, projects, more in like a research sense. Uh, so that's what I focus on in the summer. These scouting reports, um, I, I don't want to get too technical, but you know, somebody coming off the street, would they be able to come in and decipher them? Or is it one of those things where you even have to teach the coaches what they're looking at as far as these numbers go that, that you send over? Or how does that all work? Uh, well, one of, the, one of the important parts of data science is the communication of the results. So the way we, the way we communicate them, 
really makes a difference on, on whether they will be used and, and effective, really. And the way our scouting reports work is a, it's a collaboration with the coaches. So they will tell us things they're interested in, things that are useful for them. And then we will uh, provide this information to them. And then maybe we'll add something something else that they didn't ask for, but we think that it may be useful. So it's like an iterative process where we go back and forth and, and decide on what, what is really useful for them for the game preparation. We try to present it in a way that it's, understandable for for everyone. So based on your knowledge of the NBA at this point, how advanced is uh, Philadelphia's analytics staff right now as compared to the rest of the league? Well, based on what I know from other teams, I would say we have one of the biggest teams in the league. When it comes to how advanced we are, we can only guess, but based on our our team and the size and, and the personnel that we have, uh, I would say we're probably one of the top teams. We're certainly in the top on... on, on uh, how much the organization uses data to make informed decisions. And, and the analytics team is the one uh, providing the data to other departments. Very interesting. Because you're working with such, you know, guarded information, is there a lot of hiring that goes on in the NBA cross teams, like uh, uh, bringing in, I don't know, I'm just picking a team, bringing in Chicago's, uh, you know, analyst or whatever, because you have a have a spot open or do you almost have to bring in new people from outside the NBA because it's so important to guard these secrets? So far, we have been uh, hiring only outside of the NBA. It's very common that uh, NBA teams hire people that they already know and uh, people who have been in the league for some time. I think with the analytics, because it's such a technical field and it's such a new field, you don't really have that many people that have been around and you also want to find the best people. We the the way we hire is is you know the way you would imagine regular data science job being filled. Uh, so we post a position and and we go through the application. The field is so young, as you've mentioned several times. And do you find that because it's so new that your job description changes a lot, or do you feel pretty much in a, in a groove right now, or is it kind of changing all the time because it's so new? I would say in the beginning, and I, I think this probably holds for any data science team, not just working in the NBA. There's a there's a part of building up the infrastructure, building the database, and uh, building the processes on top of the database. And once that's in place, then um, everybody can focus on on different areas. And I think that's the point where we where we are right now. So our data scientists are all focused on different areas. So um, my focus is mostly on the coaching support. Grant works with the sports science team, and uh, Michael is focused on the scouting. And I think this is because we we are at the, at this stage. And, and as I said, I, I'm I'm guessing this is. It's like this in other uh, data science teams, not just in the NBA. Yeah. It sounds like you guys are really proud of what you've built, though, at this point. Like, you you really feel solid in where you are, though. Yeah, we definitely do. Um, I think I think also having two developers on the team helps with a lot of, I guess, heavy lifting and, and backhand and, and, you know, really the development side of the things so we can spend more time on the analysis. So kind of from the, the coaching perspective of it, because you, you mentioned that you work with the coaches so closely. Do you ever watch a game and kind of see your approaches in action or some of your recommendations in action? And and what kind of feeling does that give you? Do you take pride in that, kind of seeing your approaches that you've come up with, you know, working in a game? Yeah, it's a, it's a great feeling to see our recommendations working in the game. 
And I'd have to give a lot of credit to Coach Brown here. He, he has a great analytical mind. He would he would see something on the court and then ask us to uh, quantify it. So a lot of it comes from him. On the reverse side, is it hard sometimes not being able to kind of control the outcomes, even when you think, like, there's a good probability that something should happen the way you've analyzed the data and everything, but maybe it doesn't come to fruition. How difficult is that, and how do you deal uh, with that personally when maybe something doesn't go quite according to plan? I think what matters there is knowing which things we can control and which cannot. You can have the best strategy, for example, to create an open shot for your shooter, and they'll still make it only on 45% or something like that. So there's a lot of randomness that we have to accept, and we can't really control it. Uh, but what we can control is is what situations we put the players in and uh, make sure that they are in position to where, where they will most likely be successful. So similarly to that, how do you take just personally like the playoff loss? Because you guys were just so close to some really special moments, and there have been some special moments for the Sixers over the last few years, but uh, you guys were really close to advancing uh, yet again last year. Tell me about how you personally took last season's playoff loss. From my from my personal experience, I, I found it very heartbreaking. I mean, if you look at that shot that uh, Kawhi made, it, was, it could have gone either way, and that again speaks to this whole randomness um, that we cannot control and just and just accepting the things that we can control and things that we cannot control kind of gives you peace what's your personal goal with your career well i've always been interested in the on court strategy part and i think since started since i started working with the sixers that interest became even stronger uh so i sit in the coaches meetings and i've learned so much from them starting from the way they plan for the season the way they plan for each practice and then for each game and just the way they think about basketball strategy in general. So it just made me even more curious about about the on-court strategy. Do you see being able to integrate yourself even more being with the 76ers or being with another team down the line? Do you see a place where the data science and the, the on-the-court execution, where it's even more intertwined? Um, actually, what I've been doing with the Summer League was uh, was exactly that, being on the court during practice and going through, the, through some drills with the players and also doing the, the data part. Uh, for them. So I, I thought that was, a, that was a lot of fun and I really enjoyed it a lot. Uh, so if if a young girl or boy has these converging passions for math and basketball like you do, they're, like I saw you described in one article, they're, they're kind of that unicorn, if you will. Uh, what would be your, mm-hmm. your advice to a kid that you know, is thinking about uh, being a scientist but, but wanting to do it involving their favorite sport as well? Well, when I was young, this kind of job didn't exist. What I would say, as long as you do what you love and and, and you try to learn as much as you can at the young age, uh, you never know what kind of opportunity will be available at the time when you're looking for jobs. I would say just being ready for the opportunity when it comes. And as long as, as, long as it's something that you love, it's, it's Everything else is kind of easy. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today, Ivana. I really appreciate it. Good luck as you continue to move onward and upward. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much to Ivana Sercic. Appreciate her time here on the Her Hoop Stats podcast and another great episode. And it sounds like 
We've got some big-time content coming for, our, for you this week. In fact, I know we've got some big-time content, not only this podcast, but also be on the lookout for a, more of a talk-laden podcast a little later on this week. We've got something very special brewing, and Aaron said I couldn't say exactly what it was. I could just tease it, so this is me teasing it just in case something happens. But uh, another big podcast to be released in a uh, bonus content as well next week. I've been working on this for weeks now, so really looking forward to releasing that uh, coming up next week too. So thanks so much to everybody that was a part of this one. Make sure to rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. Give us a nice review. And the more specific you are, the more it helps us. Tell us what you like, tell us what you don't like, and even email us. You can email us at podcast at herhoopstats.com podcast at herhoopstats.com the announcer of the her hoop stats podcast is Susie solis thanks so much to our musician our theme music by jared deck and aaron barzilai is our executive producer until next time this is john little reminding you that at the her hoop stats podcast we are unlocking better insight about the women's game her hoop stats 